Our scripture text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what, you know what kind of man we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us and the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, you know, personal letters, handwritten letters, I think they're just, they're going the way of the dodo bird. It's going to be extinct. We have tweets, we have texts, we have emails, we have voicemail. But do you not miss the personal letter, the handwritten letter? There's a sense of, um, of personalness to it, uh, uh, intimacy. Uh, so much is communicated by a handwritten letter. I still love receiving them. I have trouble writing them, I have to admit, but I do love receiving them. But we, we have this personal letter here from Paul to, the, to these Thessalonians. And, and you, you feel the love and the gratitude that he has for them. Uh, one author said that it's kind of this unmingled sweetness in this letter. It's a sweet letter. He wants to encourage them. He wants to instruct them. He does two things, really, in the opening of this letter. He expresses first his gratitude to God for them, that they had come to faith in Christ. And then he expresses his certitude. He's confirming to them, yes, they are saved. They're rightly related to God. Remember, this is a young church. They didn't understand the things of God. They didn't have this deep and significant teaching. They were uncertain. He wanted to encourage, to confirm to them the reality of the work of God in his life. I pray that you're encouraged and instructed as well. And not just instructed to give thanks to God, but that you might be more certain of your own salvation. I don't look to unsettle those who are just naturally, you know, they're questioning and they're investigating their faith. I think that's a good thing to do. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 13.5, to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. I don't want to cause any improper or inappropriate unsettling. But I do think that a text like this helps to remind ourselves, where do we stand? Is there evidence of faith in our lives? Just like Paul was trying to affirm evidence of faith in their lives. So I hope you don't take that as, as a challenge to you, but more as an invitation to investigate the reality of our faith. Do we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So only two things I want to do today is just number one first, let's learn to give thanks to God 
for our salvation, and then let's see what evidence there is that we have, in fact, been loved and chosen by God. So look with me at giving thanks. That's what Paul does first. He gives thanks to God. Look at 2 and 3. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers and remembering before God and Father, our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember what happened last week. So Paul plants the church. He's there maybe a few weeks, perhaps a few months. He's there and he plants it. It was a remarkable success. I mean, it was probably the most successful church plant in the whole New Testament. Quickly it took off. And yet they were driven out of there in just a short time. And I think Paul was concerned. Had the gospel taken root? This was a church that immediately started facing persecution and affliction. Had the gospel taken root strong enough to weather this? I think parents know how this feels. When you send your child off to college, you want to make sure, is the character formed? Is it strong? So that when they're hit with the temptations and trials of life, Will they be fixed and firm in faith? I think that's Paul's concern. That's why he sent Timothy back. You know, you'll find this in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. He writes these words. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. So here's Paul. He travels from Thessalonica to Berea, and then he's in Athens. He says, you've got to go back, Timothy. And he sends Timothy back, back into the firing line, to make sure this church is established and growing strong. Now we find in Acts 18.5 that Timothy catches up with Paul, and he tells him what he found. And he said, they're doing great. And they've got works of faith. They're laboring in love. They're steadfast in hope. And so what Paul does is he says, hey, this is how I've been praying for you. This is, really isn't a prayer of thanksgiving. He's actually telling them how he thanks in his prayer. And notice what he says, constantly, always, for all of you. And Paul's appealing to God on their behalf. But notice, he doesn't thank them. He rather thanks God for their salvation. You see that clearly. He says, we give thanks to God. <clears throat> but you see it even more clearly in 4 and 5. In 4 and 5, he says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, that God has chosen them. That's the word for election. That God, before the foundations of the world, birthed out of the love for God, doesn't choose capriciously or, or kind of haphazardly, or, but birthed out of love, he has chosen them. And what Paul's saying is that, that that I've seen this. I'm thankful to God that your salvation is rooted ultimately in the source of God. God is the one who saves. Now Paul confirms this. You see, he goes on and says, we know that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And in other words, Paul saw uh, that they had been chosen. Why? Because how they received the gospel. The gospel came with power and the spirit and conviction. Have you ever wondered how two people can listen to the same gospel preacher at the same time saying the same thing? One is convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel message and another is not. Why? Well, we see here. It's the choice of God. That God is the author of salvation. God saves. And God has chosen these people to believe. And that's why Paul's giving thanks to God and not to them. He's not thanking them for their wise decision 
in their processing of information, he's thanking God. And he sees this. Remember now, this is a triune salvation. God has chosen them. The Spirit has evidenced that by bringing power, and they're believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see a triune salvation here. So uh, for us, as we look back in history at this church, uh, do we find ourselves grateful to God for salvation? Do you realize that salvation is not earned? It's not, it's not by your assessments. It's not you synthesizing the value of various religions. God moved with unilateral grace to save you. And if you can call upon God, and if you can call upon Christ, then we know that you can only do that by the Spirit. It says that in 1 Corinthians 10.3. No one can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. So if you call upon Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you have evidence that the Spirit has enabled you to do that because you've been chosen by God to believe in Christ. And so it makes us the most humble of people, or it should. We should be humble. We did not earn this. We didn't warrant it. We didn't somehow merit it. We didn't have the potential to justify God to save us. God, before eternity passed, chose to do it because he loved us. That's, for me, election is not so hard to understand as he loved us as we are, as sinners. I mean, the love of God cannot be overspoke. He loved us. So we're grateful and we give thanks to him. I hope you do. When was the last time you gave thanks to God? that he opened your eyes to his son? When was the last time you gave thanks to God for your spouse or your friends or your church members? They believe. Why do they believe and others don't? Let us be grateful. But let me remind you that the election and the electing mercy of God doesn't preclude our involvement. Look at Paul, who believed that salvation rested in the hand of God. He still preaches. He still sees the role to preach the gospel. He still needs to, to sow and to plant and to water. And look at Paul. You know, people often say, well, if God's sovereign over salvation, why should I pray? Pray. Well, he prayed. He kept praying constantly, always, for all of you. Uh, God not just ordains the end, he ordains the means. He calls us to be involved in his redemptive plan for the world. So we see both are involved. God's electing mercy and our responsibility to preach and to pray for people. I hope you haven't given up on those people that have yet come to faith, and you just think, well, it's too far gone, they're too far lost. Don't give up on them. Be like Paul, pray for them. Pray that they would hear the gospel and their ears would be open to it. God is using his people to pray to see the nations saved. So pray. And share the gospel. We, we live in COVID land now. Speaking with the person cutting my hair about how God allays fears. People want to know about the hope that you have. So that's the first thing we see here is that Paul is giving thanks to God for their salvation. But what Paul does next is really interesting. He gives them certitude of salvation. In other words, it's hard to give thanks to God if you're wondering if I'm saved. If you're wondering... Where you sit with God, it's hard to thank him for saving you. Or if your confidence maybe rests in some prayer that you prayed 15 years ago or some decision that you made before that, God may use your prayer or your decision. He may use that to draw you to himself. That's not where our faith is to rest. Paul gives us clear evidence of being chosen by God. And we see this really in verses 
uh, 6.4. But I want to look back at verse 3 because I think the first evidence of being chosen by God is the presence of Christian virtues in your life. Notice he said that he thanked them that they had works of faith and that they had a labor of love and that they had steadfastness in hope. And normally we see faith, hope, and love all over the place. They're plastered on Hallmark cards, on syrupy sayings, and all that sort of stuff. This is different, right? Because these things are in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Now, let me explain each one briefly. You know, these works of faith. Now, for some, this is a confusion, because you think works of faith, well, it's either work or faith, right? They're at odds with each other. I'd say, no, they're friends. Faith is what births works. In other words, if we truly believe in Jesus Christ, then there's that natural prompt to live like he lives, to do the works that he does, uh, to be generous, to be kind, to be sacrificial. Why? Because I believe that Christ sees all that I do. Not even a cup of water will he forget. And I want to live for his glory. So I'm not just talking about moral acts that you may do because you love somebody. I'm saying he is thanking them for their doing works that are prompted by the gospel, not what they may hope to receive. But not just works of faith, labor of love. This is interesting. You know, our culture looks at love as something subjective, and you can't really control it. You just feel it or you don't. But he calls it here a labor of love. Now, everybody loves their own tribe and their own color and their own people. Everybody loves their own little circle of friends and their lookalikes. But this is different. It's a labor of love. You're laboring to love people that are different than you are. You're laboring to love. You're sacrificing yourself, motivated because of God's great love for you in Christ, and you're looking to love those who are quite different than you, who can't repay you back. You know those people that when they walk in a room, you're excited to see them, and then there's others who walk in a room, and you kind of cringe and look for cover? And those are the ones that you're loving. It's a labor of love. It's not easy to do. But that's evidence of God's spirit in you, because that's what Christ did. He went to the prostitutes. He went to the tax collectors. You know, the people that, oh, I don't want to talk to them. That's the labor of love. That's the presence of God's spirit, and also steadfastness of hope. You know, many of us are hoping for things that we have enough evidence that we might, we might trust that they're going to come true. No, the steadfastness, steadfastness of hope that he's speaking about here is that you know the Spirit of God dwells within you. When you are enduring in affliction, and your trust isn't that you're going to white-knuckle it till the end, but your trust is that Christ will deliver you. He will use this. He will make all things new. Uh, so this presence of Christian virtues, this is the first evidence he gives that you've been born again, that you have been chosen by God. To what degree do you see these in your life? You know, if you were to ask your spouse or a, or a friend, which I would encourage you to do, and tell them that they can be honest, what works of faith do they see in your life? Works prompted by your faith. Not works because you have to or you need to or you want to, but prompted because you love Christ. Or sacrificial acts of love for others that aren't maybe easy to love. Or ask them, when do you see me enduring well in suffering clinging to the promises that I have in Christ. This is the evidence that we've been chosen by God. To what degree do you see it in your life? Okay, second, he gives us five of them. Uh, second is joy in affliction. Look with me at verse 6. In verse 6 he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, and with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, when the gospel came to these Thessalonians, 
Uh, they received it. They welcomed. The word means to welcome it. They embraced the word, even though it brought about persecution and affliction. And what did they do? And they did it with joy. Why? Well, because the word is you've been forgiven by God. The gospel is you've been forgiven by God. You've been reconciled to God. You're going to be with God forever. You don't have to fear about this life anymore. This is good news to a people. I mean, th that we are related with God perfectly. That we don't have to fear his judgment. Well, they received this word with joy, but they suffered for it. But the suffering that was brought to them didn't deny the joy that they had. They were like Paul. Paul says, you became imitators of us. Paul suffered in just about each town that he preached the gospel. But he says that he rejoiced in the sufferings because he was filling up what is lacking in Christ. Uh, but Paul was only following Jesus, who suffered with joy, right? Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, there's evidence. See, our joy is not in circumstances getting better, but our joy is in the truth of the gospel that is for us forever. And they had that joy. They had that thankfulness. They were grateful. I, I want to remind you that faith is most clearly revealed not in prosperity, but in adversity. It will be revealed, as genuine or not, in times of testing. So if the antagonism of our culture increases against the Christian, Will you still receive the word gladly? If pressure comes on you regarding worship, will you still come? You know, I want to remind you that there's a secret of the faith that's missed by many. And that is, there is a communion with Christ that is deep. But it's only in times of affliction. You see this in David's life. You know, in Psalm 63, it says, your steadfast love is better than life so that my lips will praise you. He said that prayer in the wilderness. He was being hunted. He was being pursued. He had no creatures, creaturely comforts. He had no ease. He was threatened, and he finds God to be better than all of it. You know, Satan seeks to bring about harm to the church. He seeks to cultivate suffering, but he doesn't realize that God works in the dark as he works in the light. And I want to remind you that it's in suffering, not the suffering that we engender by our stupidity, but the suffering that comes upon us because of our love for Christ, that will lead us to a communion with him because we will identify with him in his suffering. So joy and affliction... The fact that we can rejoice in God, even in times of testing, is evidence that God's Spirit dwells within you. And then thirdly, thirdly, a third example is that you want to be, you are an example of the gospel to others. Look with me at 7 and 8. In 7 and 8 he says, you became, a you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything so what's happening here well they were joy-filled in affliction well that that gets airtime people notice that they had a strong faith in god and it was known that's what he's saying here it was known you became an example remember last week i said this is the only church in the new testament that paul commends to us as an example and that word for example is type it's like a model you know when you do a crossword puzzle uh, you don't just spread the pieces out and begin. What do you do? You look at the picture. 
you want to know what it looks like. What ought this thing to look like? And then you go about the task. Whenever I'm building something, I always like to have pictures with the description of what I'm supposed to do so I can see it. There's a model for me to follow. And what Paul's saying to these Thessalonians is, listen, God's Spirit's in you. Look, he's using you as a model for others to follow. The way you're suffering, the way you're living. It's an example to others. In fact, that word sounding forth, that word is echo. They were echoing. Have you ever screamed in a, in a cave or in some kind of confined space and you hear it kind of rever reverberating? That's what's happening here. Their witness reverberated. I mean, if you've ever been to West Virginia, we used to go there to do missions. And when the storms would come in and the thunder would roll in, it, it would roll through these hollers. You know, hollers in West Virginia, just the valley around small mountains. But it's almost like you can hear and you can see these sound waves bouncing off the walls of these mountains as it goes through the valley. That's what kind of life they were living. And Paul's commending them. He's saying, listen, he's saying, you are sounding forth great faith in God to other believers. Don't we need this? I mean, don't you need examples to follow? I remember in being overseas in missions, I read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it's a book that uh, really catalogs all the suffering of the saints from the birth of the church. And uh, I remember reading it just thinking how impressed I was by people who suffered well. One group in that book that kind of appealed to me were these group of people called the Huguenots. The Huguenots were French believers. They were Reformed. They suffered greatly under the Roman Catholic Church. And, and they, were, they were prohibited from gathering together. They'd gather together anyways, but they'd suffer for it. They'd sneak out in the fields and they would worship God. If they were caught, uh, generally the pastor would be executed. The women would be sold into slavery. The men would be put on galley ships to pull oars. But they'd still meet. And that was impressive to me. In fact, what kind of propelled Carol and I to go overseas uh, was reading about Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew was a Dutchman. He was a Dutchman uh, risking his life to bring Bibles behind the Iron Curtain in those days when you could not get Bibles into East Germany and Czechoslovakia. And these names have changed, but those countries are there, and they were prohibited from hearing about God, but he brought them in. That caused us, at least he was um, a primary cause, not a singular, but a primary cause of selling a CPA practice, taking two kids under two and going overseas. That's the power of an example. We need examples like that. Who do you follow? Who do you watch? There have been people that I've watched suffer in this church, suffer all the way to death, holding on to faith. I need that. That's an example for me. And who are you exampling for? How does your life provide an example that others can look to and find in you an example to follow? This is evidence of God's spirit in us that we look at our lives. I need examples to follow, but I know that you're hoping to find an example in me, and I in you. The, the fourth evidence of God's Spirit. These are all evidences that they have been chosen and loved of God. A fourth one you see in verse 9, that is a shifting of allegiances. Look with me at 9. He says, how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. This is really interesting. So, so these Thessalonians were your garden variety pagans, right? I mean, they did, the, they did the idol worship with the wood or the stone statues, burning incense, bowing down, and that sort of thing. And, and, but don't, don't be so, don't write off these 
you know, these kind of pre-industrial age people too quickly. And they were, they were worshiping stone and, and, and wood, no doubt. But they were just representatives of the gods that had power. So they would look at the stone and they would see the stone a god, maybe Zeus, who has all power. And they would worship him through that. So they weren't just fooled to worship a stone. But they turned from that. They turned from their sources of power and safety and security and significance. They turned and they turned to the true and living God. You know idol worship is both false and dead. It's false because they are not gods. And it's dead because they can do nothing. And so they turned to the true and the living God. This is huge. This idea of turn is they were converted. Their lives were changed. So in other words, if you're going this way with views of life, they started going that way. So Charles Spurgeon defined conversion this way. He said you begin to hate the things you love, and you begin to love the things you hated. That's a conversion. Your life is changed. But remember, the source of idolatry is always a lack of knowledge of God. It's always a, they didn't know the true and living God. How can you be an idol worshiper when you know that only God is God? Why would you look at creation of the things that he's made and find in them source of security and significance when he's the one that made them all? So, so growing knowledge of God is what will ultimately crush idolatry. Now you think, well, I don't worship stones and I don't worship wood. Just remember, though, idolatry is like a chameleon. It can change colors. It can adapt to the culture that it's in. Idolatry really is anything where you just want more. Or, or you want security, you want significance. It can be in a person, it can be in a thing. It can be approval, it can be achievement. It can be beauty, it can be strength, it can be money, it can be sexual fulfillment. It, it's anything that you find meaning in. It's anything that gives you purpose of life. Or anything that gives you security or significance. It's anything upon which you build your identity. It can be your claim, it can be your business, it can be your popularity. You can ask yourself, the way to identify these idols is relatively simple if you're honest with yourself. What do you want most to make you happy? What do you fear most losing? What gives you the best sense of personal well-being? When you're daydreaming, where does your mind go? And to what topics does it go? You know, I, I, God does not deal well with idolatry. He, he, he does not want his children to have other lovers. He is the unique one. Now, all of us struggle with idolatry. All of us want too much of many things. I don't think it's an issue of are we idolaters or not. I think the issue is are we fighting idolatry or not? Are we doing battle with it? You know, C.S. Lewis um, in his in his shorter essays, wrote this uh, essay called Present Concerns. And in this, he described three types of people, three types of I people that struggle with idolatry. Let me read them to you. He says, the first class is those who live simply for their own sake and pleasures, regarding man and nature as so much raw material to be cut up into whatever shape may serve us. I don't think that's most of us here. I think that's just kind of a hedonist just looking for his own pleasure. Don't think most of us would fit into that category. Maybe some of us. The second class is the big one, I think. In the second class are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them, the will of God, the, categor the categorical imperative, or the good of society. 
and they honestly try to pursue their own interests no farther than this claim will allow. Then they try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what's left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided, like a soldier's or a schoolboy's life, into time on parade and off parade, in school and out of school. That, I think, is, that's us. That's where our struggle point is, that we want to try to have God, and then we actually want God to help us get the things that we want. And Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. The third class, this is the class. He said, it's those who can say like St. Paul, that for them to live is Christ. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims between self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egoistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs, it is theirs. All their time and belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. This is the target that we're aiming for. I don't think this is a place that we'll make home, but this is, the, this is what we're striving for. So folks, the presence of God's spirit in you is not in your victory and having no struggle with idolatry. It's in the fight that you have. And so are you fighting it? Are you identifying those things that seem to give you greater significance and security other than God? Are you repenting of it? Are you asking God to forgive you and to give you a greater vision of his glory so that you would see in all these things of the life that we love, they're just rays of God's goodness. Go to the Son. Go to the one who has made them all. Okay, the fifth and the last evidence of have you been chosen by God, does God's spirit dwell within you, is a longing for the return of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 10. In verse 10 he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So in other words, he is saying here that the evidence that you have been delivered unto God, the evidence that God's spirit lives in you, the evidence that God has chosen you, the evidence that you have been saying, is that we want to see Christ return. We long for his return. The longing, is this longing for his return, is, is stimulated by two things in the text. One is that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. Now, why, why does that stimulate a longing for his return? Well, if he's been raised from the dead, he's begun already to begin to make all things new. It's already started. So in other words, if Christ has died to this old life and he has begun the new order of creation, then why are we pursuing all the things of the old order? I mean, the worrying about governments and, and worrying about fame and popularity and money and all those things. Those are like sands in the hourglass passing away. You see them as your own life is changing before your eyes. It's all passing away. Christ has been raised. A new life has been created. A new world order has, in fact, begun. We are now living in it now. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, we'll never be separated from the love of God. We're already part of it. You and I, the Christian here, is eternal right now. You'll never be separated from God. Christ will always be your head. So why, why fuss about those things? Why aren't we longing for him? But not just that. It says he's delivered us from the wrath to come. We're going to talk about wrath of God later in this book. I, I would just say to you that it's, um, it's under-taught, and I say that even to myself, 
The wrath of God is when God will bring about justice to a world who has lived either in antipathy or ambivalence to him. It is a day of righteousness being brought upon evil, a reconciling of all things. It is a day to dread. You know that blast in Beirut just a few days back? Still don't know what it is. I mean, just flat city blocks. It was just, if you saw the YouTube of it, it was profound. That's just, that's just a kind of an unintended, maybe it was intended, but an, that, you know, the metaphors in Scripture of the wrath of God, like a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, metaphors are never as bad as the reality. Let me remind you of that. So if you see a metaphor in Scripture of the wrath of God and it causes you to tremble, that's just a foretaste. It's just a picture of it. And he delivered us from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ delivered us from the wrath of God by taking on the wrath of God. So, so he bore, when, when he spread out his arms and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the wrath and the forsakenness of God by becoming a curse for us so that the curse would be lifted off so we never have to fear the judgment or the wrath of God. You never have to fear that. Why wouldn't you want to see one who has done so much for us? The sun from heaven probably draws its truth from Daniel 7 when he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall never pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Do we want this kingdom to come in its fullness? So to what degree do you long for him to return? Is it strong or is it weak? Now, I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to the struggle. We don't want to wait. We're not used to waiting. I mean, we have not just microwaves, but now we have, we have Netflix and Amazon Prime. You can get any movie you want whenever you want. You can get Amazon to deliver same day. This is incredible. If you have any question in the world, you can just type it on your computer and get an answer. Not always right, mind you. But you will get an answer in probably 10,000 of them if you have long enough time to look at it. But we don't want to wait. But he calls us to wait. It's evidence. Do we long for him to return? Do you long to see him? So many people I see, they approach death, and it seems as if, it was if God is bringing them home, but their heels are getting dug in the ground. Now, I get that. There's a time to live, and there's a time to die. There's a tension in each one of us. But to see the one who has saved you from the wrath of God, to see the one who has died and been raised for your, for your well-being, your good, your communion with God forever, uh, the nature of the presence of God in your life is seen by a longing to see him. And you know when it's there because you're quick to forgive. You're quick to sacrifice. You're quick to be generous. If you really are longing for him to return, or if you're even thinking about going to him, then it changes the way you handle people now and today because you begin thinking, you know what? He could come tomorrow. I don't know. We'll get into this more in chapter 4. But, but this is a, a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith that we give very little shelf time to. Why? Because our lives are nice. I mean, I fight the same battle you fight. Our lives are nice. We have good families. You have plenty of food to eat. You have air. It's nice. It's not that bad. Again, Lewis, in his essay on the second coming of Christ, he says, there are many reasons why the modern Christian and even the modern theologian may hesitate to give to the doctrine of Christ's second coming. 
at least the emphasis which was usually laid on it by our ancestors. Yet it seems to me impossible to retain any recognizable form of belief in the divinity of Christ and the truth of the Christian faith while abandoning or even persistently neglecting the promised and threatened return. We've got to give time to this. It's evidence of the Spirit of God in your life. So what we have here, Paul has talked about giving thanks to God for the salvation that he has given to these Thessalonians. Have you given thanks to God for your own salvation? And then he gives us the evidence, evidences of what it means to be called, to be chosen, to be loved of God. Do you see these in your life? Remember Jonathan Edwards, he, he gives us the simplest definition, you know, about determining, you know, the evidence of being saved. He goes, how do you determine, you know, I love this one because I say it all the time, but yeah, how do you determine, what's the best, when the most certain way of determining that a tree is an apple tree? There's apples on it. You, know, you just see apples. If there's apples on it, yep. It's, it's, it's an apple tree. The way to determine the certainty of our own right relationship with God is, do you see the evidence of the Spirit in you? And maybe you don't. I'm not looking to bring uh, affliction to those who are just maybe young in the faith or you're uncertain. If you're uncertain, uh, speak with your spouse or uh, elder in this church or, or someone next to you in the next pod. Speak to them. How do I see what evidences of the Spirit do you see in my life? Don't just walk away, uh, perhaps feeling bad, but, but discern, discern with the help of a brother or sister. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in you? And, and for those of you who don't see it, maybe you haven't come to faith in Christ, let me be the one to remind you the wrath of God is real. He has brought judgment in the past, in the flood. God will bring judgment to creation that opposes him, and he will in the future. And, and, and yet we find the mercy of God in receiving sinners. That, that is the heartbeat. You know, one of the, I think the only scripture, this is I've read, the only scripture that really speaks to the self-revelation of Jesus, where Jesus tells us what he, what he is, who he is, is in Matthew 11. He says, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. That's the only scripture where Jesus speaks about himself in that way. And how does he describe himself? I'm gentle and I'm lowly of heart. And he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He invites the sinner. He invites the sufferer. He invites the one who is confused, maybe lost, maybe doesn't know what end is up. He invites them to come to him. And he says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So I would ask you, if you're here and this applies to you, ask, ask God reveal his son to you. Confess your sins. Believe that Christ is sufficient to save you. He will change your life. He's the author of salvation. So let's take a moment now and just ask for God's grace. Give him thanks if you have been encouraged in your faith. If you've been unsettled, ask for grace to find a Christian friend through the power of his spirit to bring you to a, a place of comfort. But let Ask God, too, that we would be a people marked by gratitude and thankfulness. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.